hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the ballot box um so this this week we're we're going about as far south as you can get we're going to chile um and to talk about the recent constitutional convention election which took place there um which was a, a really fascinating election it's a type of election that we've not had a chance to talk about on the podcast yet because they really don't happen very often and in some countries um including the one that me and chris are citing right now they have uh, have never happened mm. um so so yeah we what i want to start off by by asking um for those who are who are not aware um is what exactly a constitutional convention or a constituent assembly is the way i put it is a a constitutional convention is a sort of temporary parliament where delegates or members of the assembly get together mm-hmm. to draft a new constitution. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Would you agree I, with that, Chris? Yes, yeah. I think it's worth saying that they don't always have to be elected. So, for example, Ireland had one that fairly recently that was drawn by lot, albeit that was actually discussing like amendments to the existing mm-hmm. constitution. Um, but yeah, broadly speaking, I think that's a a good description yeah yeah i guess i would agree i would agree with the we agree with that i mean it's um that we're often talking about these happening um immediately after a, a transition to democracy um mm. probably the most common time that happened um but as we said some examples we mentioned already they don't always do that and sometimes countries will will seek to revise and update or, re- or replace their constitutions for whatever reason a long time after the transition um, and and do that um, and do that and this is what's happened in Chile. Um, so yeah, why why exactly are we having in Chile right now um, this 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 election? Why has Chile wanted to change its constitution? That that's a great question. It's a good place to start. And there are different. I think there are different um, reasons why Chileans have voted for a new um, constituent. Uh, for, for a new constitution, for, for electing a uh, constitutional convention. The most immediate reason, the most kind of immediate one, is that there were a series of protests that began in 2019 over a fair hike in the Santiago subway system. Although some people would kind of go back probably even to the 2011 massive student mobilizations in Chile, mm. who were asking for more government subsidies for universities and for eventually um, free higher education. So there were massive protests beginning with a fair hike, but which were actually about something deeper. And that was a discontent with current politics and also a discontent with the economic model that exists in Chile that is tied up to the current constitution in ways that I think we'll, we'll, we'll reference later on in the podcast. These massive protests were the biggest kind of most, they, they happened on and, on and off for over a year, 2019 and, and most of 2020, despite COVID-19 restrictions. The government reacted brutally. I think some of the worst instincts of both the, the current government and also the police and armed forces were awakened by this uh, by these mobilizations, something that reminded them also of the of the of the era of Pinochet and and the dictatorship. And the government came up with something that seems like a kind of, I think, a desperate solution, which was to call for a plebiscite in late 2020 to ask whether or not people wanted a new constitution. And so there was, a first election, there was an election that preceded the election we're going to talk about, which happened on the 25th of October, 2020, where Chileans had to answer whether or not, two, two very simple questions were, were on, the, on two different ballot papers. The first was, do you want a new constitution? And 78.28% of, of registered voted, voters voted yes. And the second question was, what sort of organ should draft the new constitution? A mixed convention where some of the delegates, some of the delegates would be um, sitting parliamentarians, or a completely new constitutional convention that would be elected from scrap. And the second option, the completely new kind of blank slate option, won by seventy-nine percent of the vote. So basically, everyone who voted for a new constitution also voted for uh, a constituent assembly convention. Sorry, that was uh, drawn from another popular vote. 
so that's that's a kind of the briefest history I could come up with um, mm. for why it is that Chileans now voted for a new constitutional convention. Yeah. Whether and one of the interesting things about this is there's so much kind of promise and uncertainty towards the future. So um, whether or not a new constitution was strictly needed, I think will be debated by a lot of people and, and several Chileans certainly thought that a new constitution was not necessary, but most did. Most thought that it was needed. Um, yeah. what, what a constitution means is also a question in and of itself. So what, how, how kind of how structured, how long the constitution is and how much of politics and policy it'll structure will depend on what goes on um, within the constitutional convention that, that then debates this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's worth it, yeah, it's worth remembering that what we're essentially talking about is like the rules of the game in terms of how how democratic politics is, is structured. It's also really interesting. It, it's also incredibly telling, I think, that it was actually a right wing president that that has been empowered. That the the left has long dislikes this constitution because it's tied up with the legacy of Pinochet um, for reasons we'll get into shortly. Um, but the right has, the, the right in Chile is formed of parties that in 1988, when the transition to democracy started, had at least misgivings about transitioning to democracy and supported, you know, parts of the Pinochet legacy. So the fact of this happening under a right-wing president, it's, it's telling about, I think, about how far things have gone in terms of this demand, which has been, you know, talked about, you know, it has been a substantial part of electoral politics and protest politics in Chile for quite some time. Like the, 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 the previous two presidential campaigns had significant debates about having a new constitution um, before before Pinera was elected. We're, we're talking about a very momentous election and I think we've, we, I, I definitely uh, tend to veer into the kind of, um, I don't know, the kind of the overly uh, uh, grandiose, but it's worth um, having a note of caution and bounding our kind of grandiosity to the fact that whatever comes out of the convention will then be submitted to a second referendum um, or, or plebiscite, sorry, plebiscite, that then has to, that is submitted to the popular vote. And, and, and you know, there needs to be a simple majority that accepts the new document. So yes. it's also not sure that Chile will have a new constitution. Yes. It's just very likely at the moment. But I think also a lot depends on the actual deliberation and the, the text that comes out. Yeah, and, and yes, and for reasons we'll continue to discuss later, some of the mm. negotiations may be tr tricky. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. See, so, so you've already alluded to the fact that this the the constitution currently um, dates from the the, the Pinochet era. Um, obviously, this the the Pinochet regime in, in Chile has quite a lot of notoriety around the world. Um, both as an extremely kind of brutal authoritarian regime, but also as one that was was highly neoliberal and in some ways kind of chilly in the, the sort of late 70s kind of served as a, a sort of testing ground for kind of neoliberal policy before it was kind of mainstreamed um, around mm. and other parts of the world. Um, we've got things like the kind of his relationship with like the Chicago boys and stuff like this and um, really, really kind of yeah. developing this very kind of slimmed down state so yes. what is it? Yeah, what is it about this constitution, and how does it kind of uh, bear his imprint on the imprint of his policies that has made it so uh, kind of uh, so opposed by to by the left? I think the first thing is um, just the fact that this the 1980 constitution, the, the constitution that's currently um, you know valid in, in Chile, was written by a group of men behind closed doors. And it was a, a working group that was appointed by the military junta. And then the military junta approved of that constitution written, you know, behind closed doors by experts that were, you know, judicial experts that were very close to the regime. 
And then it was submitted to a plebiscite under incredibly undemocratic conditions, uh, an election that would that really is is not you know does not have democratic legitimacy. So I think the first thing to note is that this is an incredibly the origins of the of the document are incredibly illegitimate, especially to kind of modern Chilean eyes. That's the first thing. The second part is the set of um, the, the, the set of regulations that lock in a neoliberal free market economic model. Um, and it does it through various forms of regulation. We were discussing this before we started recording, but one of them is, for example, the fact that the Supreme Court in Chile has both a priori and a posteriori judicial review powers. So it can actually um, declare parts of a law inconstitutional before it's even applied, for example. So it's a very high um, uh, judicial review powers. There are also certain parts of the constitution that, for example, um, don't let, have, have avoid, have, have not let water be provided by public services, by, by governmental services. And Chris had a really good point about budget budgets in Chile. Yes, so there's a, a very good, I mean, it, this is an article from 1998 and the constitution has been amended a number of times, um, but um, there's a very good article um, by um, Carrie and um, someone else whose name I've sadly forgotten <laughs> um, that um, discusses how the budgetary process in Chile is very much designed to in a way that makes it very difficult to raise spending and to spend from budget from deficits in fact um, there's a very interesting point in that article that um, most countries after a democratic transition um, that you tend to start to see um, budgets climb quite quickly the reason being that um, the new system needs to kind of win legitimacy and popularity. And so it needs to spend money on the things that the former regime spent money on to keep those people happy, but also to kind of prove itself to people who are former opponents of the regime. And Chile is actually kind of unique in that it, uh, money, if anything, spending actually, if anything, went a little bit down. Um, so it, it that that process obviously, if you can't spend, it's difficult to do reforms. Um, and and yeah, and as I understand it, large parts of the constitution reserve large parts of law for things that require super majorities as well, which obviously also imposes difficulties. Yeah, which would all mm. explain why. Um, why, why we've, Chile is still facing these uh, kind of huge problems with inequality, despite having kind of centre-left government for, for t more than 20 years, basically. Yes, um, it was a continuously, yeah. It was the longest running democratically centre, democratic centre-left government anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. I believe. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because as we've, yeah, as we've touched on before, I mean, Chile is uh, somewhat distinct from uh, Latin America in many ways. Um, in the yeah, it, it certainly in terms of uh, it, it, it economically, we tend to think of it as kind of having the, the kind of probably the highest kind of standard of living, probably with Uruguay of, of any country in the region. Mm. Um, but it's also yeah, it has these kind of huge problems with inequality, um, which were not all made by the Pinochet period, but they certainly were not helped by it, and certainly were not helped by the fact that those kind of restrictions and that kind of uh, a very kind of minimal state economic model was 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 kept in place um, by by this in some ways by this constitution for so long. Mm. Okay. So so yeah. So I think we've we've got to the point now where we can kind of understand a little bit why there would have been demand for a constitution and and kind of put, and, uh, and and why this why this uh, this election has been held. Um, so tell us a little about the kind of the system that has been set up to create this, this constitutional assembly, because I gather to a certain extent, it was based on the system in place for the for le the normal legislative elections, but with some interesting quirks. Sure. Um, 
I think, uh, yeah. So, so it's it, the the way that the Constitutional Convention was elected was, as you said, based on on the way in which Chileans usually elect their their parliament, the, the lower house of their parliament, and so there were 155 members of this Constitutional Convention, just as there are 155 members of the lower house of Chile, and the the, the country is divided up into 28 different electoral districts. And each district sends a certain number of seats to the to the lower house and therefore also to the constitutional convention. And these electoral districts range in size from eight to three seats. So the, the smallest are three, the largest, which are basically the ones in Santiago, the Chile, have eight seats. Um, then the way in which people voted for the actual convention was by voting for an individual member of, uh, or a candidate of a list. And so this is an open list PR system, but citizens could only vote for an individual candidate, not for a whole list or not for several candidates, even if they were within the same list. So only one candidate per list. And once that vote was cast, it's, uh, the, the, the votes are pooled and seats are assigned per list, not per individual, even if the voting does go to the individual. And the way in which votes are assigned is by using the DeHunt method. And that's that's how seats are allocated. Um, yeah, I think that, so, so, I mean, I think most of our listeners will know kind of, will kind of immediately recognize this, but just, you know, just important to note, and this was part of the conversation that was happening in Chilean social media, for example, is the fact that even if an individual candidate obtained the highest number of votes, if their list wasn't, you know, a high, um, didn't obtain a high number of votes, that candidate wouldn't become part of the constitutional convention and vice versa, right? So you got a lot of you know, kind of attractive individual yeah. figures wh who if pooled would, would be able to push their list forward and get a seat allocation. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's um, for those who know European electoral systems. It's very close to the to the Finnish electoral system, um, which has kind of similar issue. It has 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 a kind of similar setup in that you vote for a candidate, and and it's um, but those are pooled within a a party list. Um, but um, yeah, it it does have um, some interesting effects in terms of making elections more personal um, because there's to some extent competition within those lists um, but um, that competition is it, it is obviously itself um, limited by the fact that you are still all all wanting the party to get a certain number of votes so that you can get maximize its seats yeah, so it doesn't have the same kind of party weakening effect as like SDV quite in that respect. Then it's no. slightly stronger on the party side. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like it's it, it's also I mean open lists in general are also um, you know it, it, depending on how strong your parties are they have some effect as well. So for example, Brazil has an open list system, and Brazil's open list system is pretty bad because the the constituencies are too big and that means that you that you know that um that you get overwhelmed with candidates and people uh, but it's also it's also a problem in brazil because the parties are very weak and so people don't have a kind of strong sense of so um, so people tend to vote for kind of anti establishment candidates who might be for parties that they don't really know anything about and is therefore pull in a bunch of people that perhaps they didn't want to be MPs, but um, Chile is Chile is using a quite a small district magnitude, um, so like some of the seats have as few as three three members, um, which means that you know the number the number of candidates is more manageable for people, which is which is also very similar to Finland. And, and Finland has of quite small district managers by European standards. 
Okay, yeah, for people who like the electoral systems talk, um, we might have a bit of a treat for you next week. Um, but yeah, for now, we should go back to to, to Chile. Um, one mm-hmm. of the, the the things I wanted to ask about, which was quite an intriguing feature of this election, uh, from my point of view, was the reserved seats for um, for the indigenous population, um, which was never something that um, the Chile has kind of gone for before in terms of um, having kind of a, a sort of sectional um, representation um, in in the legislature, which some of the countries do. Um, so you have something like um, in something like in the New Zealand in New Zealand, obviously this is kind of a constant feature of the system, but it's it's not something which has happened in Chile before. So so why was this decision taken to put aside some seats for um, to, to represent indigenous groups? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Chile is, I mean, the fact that, that indigenous groups would be included as part of, res, had reserved seats in Chile is really um, significant. It's, it, you know, Chile is one of the few countries in Latin America that doesn't recognize in its constitution the multicultural or pluri-ethnic or plurinational nature of its population. Like most countries in Latin America have already included in their constitution some sort of reference to the fact that to, to the kind of to the fact that they that, that their societies with important indigenous populations and a degree of protection to um, in, like First Nation or Indigenous languages and nationalities and culture, right? Chile doesn't have that. So this was part of the protests. A lot of a lot of the um, uh, you know Indigenous groups, especially the Mapuche, have been very active in protests, especially against um, extractive industries and dam building. Um, so it would make. I mean, it, it's it's a sign to the degree to which this constitutional convention is already a product of social mobilization. Um, and, and one of it is, is the important role played by indigenous people. There are 17 seats out of 155 that were reserved for indigenous people. And those 17 seats were then subdivided into the main ethnic groups in Chile. Seven for the Mapuche people, who are, who are the largest indigenous group, then two for the Aymara, second largest group, and then eight for other indigenous communities of Chile. These district, these um, seats were spread out throughout Chile, um, mapping onto the territory wherein most of these indigenous people live. Obviously, this isn't perfect because indigenous people in, in the Americas, we have to say uh, in this, you know, it's, it, it aren't, especially in Latin America, um, they live you know, all sorts of places. They're highly urban. A lot of indigenous people um, of, of Latin America, they've gone to major cities, um, not all of them, but, you know, large, large percentages of the population of indigenous people in Latin America are now urban. Um, so the idea of like um, this district being firmly indigenous is a little bit of a fiction, but, you know, it, 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 it approximated it in, in the way that the seats were distributed throughout the country. Yeah, and it's worth it's worth remembering that representation is a kind of tricky thing because you're like thinking about like lots of interlocking kind of things. But like this reminds me of um, like there's a concept called virtual representation, which is like you're you're represented by uh, a group, uh, it, you're, you're represented by people of your group on certain certain issues. Um, even if you don't necessarily live in their constituency. So like an example that I found in one journal article when I was reading up on representation at one point was um, Barney Frank, one of the first LGBT people in the in, in US Congress, used to receive a lot of letters from, from LGBT people outside his district to basically cam- asking him to kind of campaign on issues that affect that community because they imagined that he would understand those communities more. So it's not necessarily, although that does create difficulties, it might, um, it, it may, it, it may still allow people outside those districts to feel represented, even if they're not within them. Yeah, and the um, the other the other uh, kind of representation uh, sort of factor in this election was also the use of kind of uh, of, of various mechanisms to to produce gender parity in the convention. Um, so how, how exactly did that kind of work this time around? Yeah, it's, it's worth underlining that this is a 
historic first for the probably for the world as far as mm-hmm. I know. Um, and and the Chilean constitution, if it's approved, will be the first constitution of the world that was written by basically fifty percent women. And that's mm. it's it's a huge deal. Or, or close um, to I, yeah, or mm. close to fifty percent, right? Mm. So the gender quota that was established for the election of the constitutional convention was is what is called an effective quota. So it's not only on the on the candidates, i.e., not only half of the candidates need to be at least not only at least half of the candidates need to be women, but um, at least at least half of the winners per district have to be women. And that's a really, I think that that's, that's really important. Um, so even if a, even once, once, once seats were, apport, were allocated by list, if there weren't at least, um, you know, in, a, in an even number district, if there weren't an even number of female winners, then within the list, the top male winners would cede their places to the top female winners mm. um and therefore become you know that's why it's effective because the actual winners of the election have to be women now there are lots of odd numbered districts in chile so in odd numbered districts the rule did allow for a lack of parity that because it's, it's obvious there has to be a lack of parity but the lack of parity could only be by one um mm. by one winner right one seat per district but because a lot of districts are, are odd numbered, this could have led to a kind of disproportion, an overall lack of um, balance, gender balance in the, in the constitutional convention. So there was an additional rule whereby there was an overall floor of 45% female constituents. It's also important to note that even the seats reserved for indigenous candidates also had also had a, a gender quota um, to them. So, for example, for Maput for the Mapuche people, where there were seven seats, at least three had to go for women. <clears throat> the Aymara, at least one had to go for for a female candidate, and the remaining had to be out, at least you know half of the remaining um, reserved seats for indigenous people had to be um, female uh, female constituents. So, you know, very, you know, it's a really important uh, rule baked into the election itself mm-hmm. that will then guarantee that at least 45% of the, of the constituents are female um, who discuss, yeah. I, who discuss the, the... I actually just looked, I actually just looked this up. Um, <clears throat> the final results, 77 women were secured seats to 78 men. So it's literally, uh, it's basically as close to 50-50 as you can get. Um, given that it's an odd numbered assembly <laughs> yeah exactly so so you know the the, the rule worked it's mm. it's quite extraordinary i think it's, it's yeah. really exciting and and this comes again just as you know the case for there's a historic kind of reason why gender quotas are so important in chile it, i think a lot of people already know this but there's a sort of um there's a, an important transnational feminist movement across latin america that has mobilized against um, patriarchal norms and laws. And so in Argentina, there was what is called the the green tide women Mm -hmm. who protested for reproductive rights. And and they eventually pushed the Argentine um, Congress to approve an extremely progressive, um, uh, you know, sexual education and abortion law. And in Chile, there's also been a huge feminist movement that was part of the important protests of 2019-2020. The most famous collective within the feminist group is called Las Tesis, who came up with a performance that has been reproduced across the world, um, including a performance in Turkey that was banned. So, you know, the feminist mobilization has been really important. So the gender quota comes, I think, you know, to a large degree as a response to that. It's really important. It's also um, worth referencing that there was a candidate quota for um, disabled people as well, 5%. Um, And I think all these quotas together um, push for, like, are are a reminder of one of the reasons why this 
constitutional convention has been pushed for, which is that in total, the current Chilean constitution has very little in the way of either social rights or group rights. And that therefore, by obviously the attempt is to, to some extent, push for this wider representation so as to um, take those rights into account um, um, in the new document. Okay. And then, so we'll, I'm going to get on um, quite shortly to talking about the kind of results of, of, of this. Um, but yeah, just, just briefly before we do, how will the kind of convention work? How will it go about conducting its business? Um, how will we end up maybe with a, with a new constitution from this? So um, now that now that the, the convention has been elected, they'll take their seats in a few weeks and they have to come up with certain ground rules as to how the convention will actually work. So the first part of the deliberation will be around coming up with um, what commissions there will be, how, you know, um, how many people will form the, the commissions, what order things will be discussed in, um, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things, one of the rules that are already in place and have been in place since the election was called is that there needs to be a two thirds approval, both for the rules of order. So the way in which the convention actually works, but then also for the text itself. So um, this is obviously a very, very important part of how the convention will work. It needs a high level of um, agreement. It's not just a simple majority. And yeah, it's worth noting um, for um, fans of of uh, voting um, literature that that's a level of negotiation which is usually considered to be good for producing like consensual condorcet outcomes. So that uh, that would tend to suggest that um, it will be a constitution that. Um, that is is close to uh, is close to kind of satisfying as many people as possible. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Another another important rule that doesn't seem like a rule at first, but is actually um, it will it will have a huge influence on the way in which deliberations take place and probably the final draft of the constitution is that by law. The convention only has nine months to draft the constitution and it can extend those nine months for another three months. So uh, they have up to a year, um, but they can only extend, extend the time that they deliberate for, for an extra three months. So it's at, at the most, it'll be a year to come up with, with a constitution. And I say that this is a rule that's like very influential because if you think about it, a year to discuss every possible aspect of governance is not very long. Um, I think, you know, especially, and, 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 and there's a sort of collective action problem here as well, because the larger the convention, the harder it is to come to agreements. So the longer del del deliberation takes, so actually a year is not that long of a time. So I think part of the reason why it's a year, I think part of the reason why um, when the Chilean Congress came up with these rules, they came up with, at most a year is to keep the constitution short, I think, partially, um, which I think constitutional experts tend to agree is a good thing, but it definitely limits the possibility of specific rights. Yeah. Um, something we can talk about. It later. probably also limits the potential for radical change in terms of like the key mechanical structures as well. So like, you know, like there's, it's probably unlikely that it's probably less likely that, for instance, you'll get kind of dense arguments about whether to have a parliamentary system or a semi-presidential system rather than a, that than kind of significant change away from the kind of model of presidentialism that Chile has. Um, so I suspect it will probably mean that what we end up with is a constitution that is to a large extent based on the one that already exists, but kind of redesigned uh, to um, to deal with the problems that people have with the current document. Yeah, so so I think deliberation was held. It, deliberation is certainly unconstrained um, de facto, but the rules in order to the, the rules around the, the constitutional convention 
will, I think, certainly constrain choices. And and as you're right, Chris, I think they're they're meant to create incentives to more or less reproduce something very close to what already exists. The two thirds majority, the short span of time for deliberation and drafting, and then the fact that then has to it has to be submitted to an, to another plebiscite. It has to be approved by at least 50% of Chileans. And what you'll probably see is that the constitutional conventions deliberations will be very open and transparent and will therefore afford more establishment political actors a chance to campaign against specific provisions that are being discussed as they're being discussed in preparation for the plebiscite vote. So I think you'll get politics on, on lots of levels operating during the constitutional convention and deliberation will, will always kind of meet the possible scrutiny of outside actors, actors outside the convention who are gearing up for the plebiscite vote. Yeah, it's also um, useful to those more established political actors as well, because they're probably likelier to be more disciplined and coherent in terms of maintaining a line within the assembly votes. And that can be useful in and of itself in kind of big complex legislatures that we've drawn. Anyone that can kind of maintain discipline is immediately very useful because it means that if you can, for example, get a, a, a political party where you, you know that they can deliver 15 votes for whatever you negotiate with them on, um, once you've got a deal with them, that's 15 votes in the bag. You don't need to worry about them splintering. You don't need to worry about their whipping breaking down. You don't need to worry about any of that kind of stuff that can happen with kind of a less disciplined party. So even even though obviously the assembly is, even though the obviously the assembly that has been elected and we'll talk about the results a little bit more soon, has a a lot of kind of new actors in it um, that might still provide a kind of benefit to the kind of more traditional political parties in Chile. Right. And I think actually just just as a bridge between that and and the results, it it might be just worth mentioning who stood for election. And so, or, or, you know, how how registration happened to stand for the election. Parties got an automatic, parties could, could, um, how do you call, uh, nominate candidates automatically for, for districts. But then there was also a process for registering as an independent candidate. And it was actually a really interesting process because it was open to any Chilean citizen. Any Chilean citizen could could nominate themselves as a candidate. But in order to officially appear on the ballot, they needed to garner 0.4% of the vote, 0.4% of citizen support, equivalent to 0.4% of the total vote that happened in that electoral district on which they were standing. And then citizens could provide support for one independent candidate in their district alone and only once via an internet system where they would punch in their um, national ID uh, number. And then they could you know, look, look through a drop-down menu of many, many um, citizens who had you know, kind of nominated themselves for a candidate and then give them their support. So this, is, this was kind of like you know, the, a kind of primary for independence that was held completely online. And there was a little bit of campaigning going on before that. So this is one of the reasons why we also saw a lot of independent candidates because the, there was a kind of smooth process in place and the barriers were not too high. I mean, 0.4% of a district um, isn't actually a lot. Um, so it was it was feasible even for kind of people outside of traditional parties or or political movements. Okay, all right. So should we move to the the results of the election now? Um, so we had the in first place the kind of the the right wing alliance which currently governs Chile, uh, which ran under this Vamos por Chile uh, label, um, was the first place list as i've said but only received 20.6 percent of the of the vote this is going to be really significant because pretty much 
um, all of the other lists that were elected were to some extent leaning to the left. And that means that they do not ha even have the kind of third of the seats they would need to to kind of uh, to, to kind of block um, amendments made under the system that that we've just described. Um, so what what's kind of behind this that it really kind of bad collapse for the for the the governing party, but also we're talking about this kind of big successful adults of left wing alliances. But the kind of center left alliance, which is the the successor to the uh, to the the Constitution, the the government main uh, left wing alliance, which governed Chile for all of those years, that also did really badly, only received fourteen point five percent. So, so what's happened here? Why, why have the the two traditional blocks uh, performed so badly in this election? Oh, right. I, I mean, I think Chris has some really interesting opinions about this. So I'll I'll. And, and I think they're really important. I'm going to okay. give my my two cents um, very quickly. I think there's there's obviously this is a moment of like anti there's anti-establishment politics in Chile, partially because of the um, I think the social movements were a symptom, but they were also they also served to exacerbate critiques of established parties. Um, mm -hmm. So both the fair hikes and also mobilizations around like pensions and other kind of, you know, extremely kind of abrasive economic policies made a difference, but then also COVID. Like, although Chile has done really well in terms of vaccinations at the moment, um, it's also suffered just like all other Latin American countries with the, with the exception that I think in Chile, a lot of citizens are used to pretty highly effective government services as opposed to the other Latin American countries. But it's, mm -hmm. but the, 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 the way in which COVID hit Chile has been just as devastating. So I think that created an even larger kind of backlash against the ruling party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so uh, my primary view on this is that this is the, the bad result for the two main coalitions almost represents a, a kind of continuation of a trend that we've seen in, in Chile for for some time, which is particularly on the left, a kind of breakdown of the, those two traditional coalitions. Um, that's that's in large part, I think, because the Chilean political system has been forced by the existing constitution for a long time to be very consensual. So it wasn't the case that, for example, nothing could quite get done under the constitution um, as it existed, but that even though the centre-left continually won elections, particularly until 2009, they um, were not able to deliver on a lot of political demands without kind of huge amounts of negotiation, um, bartering, deal-making with the right-wing coalition. Um, because of the nature of the constitution that it was in place, um, and that and that also created a number of um, of constitutional conventions that uh, that um, accelerated that uh, kind of bartering and consensus process. And in in Europe, what we've seen is that um, in a lot of countries which have very consensual political systems, have been particularly prone to the rise of right wing populism because of the sense that the, the cosy consensus that exists within parties um, means that certain um, socially conservative political demands were not being met or even heard or even discussed. And I kind of feel that that's probably part of what has been going on in Chile for quite some time now, and that has been accelerated by this process of, of protest, as Andreas rightly says, COVID, um, and and deepening inequality, um, that but the, obviously the difference is is that in Chile the demands that are not being met are ones that are traditionally much more associated with the left. Probably the biggest story to come out of this constitutional convention, along with the fact that oh my god, a major economy of the world and major country is going to have a new constitution, and the fact that the first time in the world that there's like gender parity for the drafting constitution is the fact that 
independents and far left parties, far left or le parties that are more to the left than the central left concertacion mm. have won them, have won, you know, enormously in this, in this vote. Mm. Um, and and uh, we don't, uh, we're often taught as political scientists to think of protest and institutional participation as two kind of slightly separate fields of study. Um, but this is a this is an example where where these two things actually merge, and the the the, the incredible number of protests that happened, and the intensity uh, of both protests and repression on the part mm. of the government, a repression that actually intensified anti-government feeling, is is culminating or or in this vote in this kind of institutional mm. form of political participation. I think from people who live in who lived in Chile during during these years, it's, I've, I've gained a small sense of what the protests were. They were absolutely massive and, and they were met with a lot of violence and they resisted and kind of seemed to gain strength from repression instead of um, backing down. Mm -hmm. Partially also probably because of the, the very distinct kind of history of repression that happened under Pinochet. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's worth noting for um, those who are like who are interested in like measuring democracy that um, I had a look at Freedom House's Freedom Freedom House, which is a major organisation which um, m tries to measure the level of democracy and civil liberties in any country for Chile, and there was a tumble on c civil liberties, re reduction of about four points related to the repression that happened in the protests um which i i don't know a huge amount about what happened precisely but is a good sign that freedom that whoever was doing the um measurement at freedom house was truly spooked by the level of repression that happened to those protests yeah i mean so a certain a, a, a certain number of protesters were killed at the hands of the police but then police also the government made a case that police were using non-lethal um, weapons to push back demonstrators. But for example, a lot of um, tear gas and rubber bullets were aimed, apparently now it's known, purposefully at people's um, heads. So a lot of, a lot of Chilean protesters lost, lost an eye. I mean, we're talking of many, many dozens of, of protesters who lost eyes during the protest. There's a famous case of one activist, a woman who became an activist because she lost her eyes just kind of walking by a protest. She got a gas canister um, uh, shot at her forehead and she mm -hmm. lost her, both of her eyes because of that. She became a national symbol. Um, her name is Fabiola. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was quite, I think it was really brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I don't want to go into this too much, but there seems to be a kind of trend in Chile where almost every single traditional institution has to some extent become, um, become um, controversial or discredited. So um, it's um, so obviously in, 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 in those particular in that particular period as well, you can kind of see how that results in this kind of great upswell of anti-establishment feeling. One last, one mm. last hot take on anti-establishment voting. And I think uh, this is kind of, if, if we're, I mean, if we're very optimistic, I think this vote can be interpreted in the social movement that came before it as a way to steer Chile into a kind of more European style, well, building a more European style welfare state. Um, and we know that these are really difficult things to happen and they need kind of a historic kind of momentum to, to happen. Um, so if the two main parties or the two main groups of parties that have been in power, um, I mean, the, the current government headed by Piñera is, is, you know, he, the president of Chile is now one of the country's richest individuals. He's worth, you know, many, I think many billions of dollars. 
Um, he obviously won't represent, he, he obviously doesn't represent, you know, the, the construction yeah. of the welfare state. And then the center left has also been in power and, and maybe not by a fault of their own, but by the kind of rules of the game, they haven't actually been able to build that either. So I think yeah. it's kind of natural that if what, 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 a, what a important mass of Chileans want is a kind of completely new economic model yeah, yeah. that they would steer away from those who've already been in power and have not, you know, haven't even approached that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's worth saying on that as well, that the centre-left has is not been completely drawn from, but has had a number of, a very large number of politicians who are, you know, from very wealthy elite backgrounds themselves, have have suffered re, um, repression under the, under previous leaders, but like, you know, as recently as 2013, for instance, uh, uh, yeah, uh, as recently as 2009, for example, the um, uh, the centre left was running um, one of the Frey family, who's you know um, who who have been a kind of dominant part of the Christian Democratic Party for a very long time, and um, one of their one of the Freys was a president in the 60s. So like, this is a very it's it's you know the, the, they experienced repression under. Um, Pinochet, but they have been elites despite that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth remembering that this this kind of big centre-left block um, very prominently contained the Christian Democrats and sort of various sort of social liberal parties as well, rather than just being kind of strictly um, yeah. what we would regard it's as a, like classic left socialist, social democratic forces yeah. as well. It's yeah. a very broad, diverse coalition mm-hmm. of, of basically of parties that were opposed to Pinochet primarily, um, but yeah, who, who do are obviously more situated on the left and, than mm-hmm. the right. So, so what was the main sort of dividing lines between the different lists and alliances in in this election? On on what what would were, were they running with kind of uh, proposals in mind for things that they wanted to do with the constitution? Would you have known um, if you were voting in Chile? Would you have known that X candidate wanted to do this with the constitution? Yeah, I think I think you would have. Um, I looked into a lot of the the advertisements. Uh, on the campaign because it's worth noting something that quite obvious but maybe we have we didn't talk about but the 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 candidates for the constituent assembly had a campaign period and they had some you know i think a lot of the commercials were about the theme was obviously change um even the more establishment candidates and those closer to the government had to Board, had to come on board with change because you know the constitution is being written whether they want it or not. So you know, for example, um, Vamos por Chile also had to campaign for for you know change change even if they didn't want to. But so one of the some of the things that came up with the election, for example, and that people would know is that um, certain candidates were espousing, for example, the inclusion of indigenous people's rights as part of the fundamental text. Others have been campaigning for um, more more social rights. So things such as government sponsored education or higher pension, Mm -hmm. higher minimum wages. Um, Others yet were talking about decentralization, um, Mm -hmm. although less less so. Um, And and also, yeah, education played a a large role because higher education in Chile is highly privatized. Only about twenty five percent of universities are yeah publicly funded, and a lot of the protesters um, have been student protesters as well, haven't they? So obviously, that's a even if you're not a student, you're very aware that that's a group that feels very annoyed. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Environmental rights were also a bit big on the on the agenda. Um, Chile is 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 known for. You know, copper. It's copper industry. It's it's copper export. It's the largest copper exporter in the world. But it also has other industries that are centered around you know the export of of primary goods um, and I guess extractive industries. So the environment has played a, an important role in both in social mobilizations and in the campaign that followed. Um, others were were campaigning for a short constitution. And so there was a slogan that said, keep it, keep it short. 
and this this I, I believe was Vamos por Chile, the the center right wing, mm. um, currently in government. They 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 their slogan was "Keep it short, vote vote for me, and I'll keep the constitution short." That that's both a refer. That's actually a reference to. It's a way of arguing. Let's not include a chain, a big change to kind of the ground rules. Chile has been doing mm. pretty well already, um, because by some measures, by macroeconomic measures, it has, um, and so their their call to keeping keep the constitution short is a is is a code for not not stirring the pot too much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are definitely benefits to keeping a constitution short in terms of, for example, it allows more to be done through, through, through democratic means, depending on, you know, because a short constitution is probably going to have, you know, forward, fewer complications. But obviously, you know, people are going to have um, qualms about that because of both who it's coming from and, and the, the, the nature of the history of Chilean democracy. Yeah, and this is one of the things that um, it's just, um, I don't want to go too much into it, but Latin America, there's, there's, a, there's, there's been a wave in Latin America of what is called um, like social constitutions or social constitutionalism. So many countries in Latin America have either reform their constitution or come up with a new constitution, especially during like the pink tide, for example, to include social rights as an integral part of, of the fundamental text. But as kind of lots of people in Latin America know, including rights in the constitution doesn't necessarily mean that they're guaranteed, especially in places that have relatively low rule of law. And a lot of social a lot of rights that are around the redistribution of wealth or the provision of government services depend not only on them being coded in the constitution, but also on economic growth. So if a country has a terrible kind of economic, um, has, has a terrible economy, then it can't guarantee the things that are put down in the constitution. Yeah. I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. In Mexico, internet is a human right. That doesn't mean that everyone has internet or that you can actually effectively sue the state for not providing the internet, right? Mm. Um, likewise, you know, uh, dignified work is a human, is a right in several Latin American constitutions. That doesn't mean that everyone has a dignified form of work, right? It means, so, so, so a lot of people believe that the social constitutionalism of, of Latin America has actually divided rights up into kind of the guaranteed rights by the state and things like due process, et cetera, that the state can actually be sued because it doesn't fulfill. And then another set of rights, which are more of like a framework of aspirations to which the state tries to kind of move society forward. So I think the same debate will be faced in Chile now. Um, that doesn't mean that, that, that things can't get substantially better for Chileans and that they can leave behind some of the more kind of, I think, frankly, perverse forms of congealing free, like, you know, an extreme form of free market in, in Chile. That doesn't mean it can't be, yeah. things can't change, but there's a limit to how much the constitution yeah. can actually change. Um, yeah, I mean, a short constitution could still be beneficial for kind of left-wing politicians in terms of the fact that the current constitution is a straitjacket, essentially, that is designed to stop you from being able to do progressive policy change um then uh, yeah uh, uh, yeah so it, 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 it there is an interesting debate to be had here but yeah even a, even a short constitution may be beneficial in the long run mm. Mm -hmm. was was there any is there any kind of debate about uh, a more kind of significant change to constitution in terms of like changing the the governing model um maybe kind of scrapping presidentialism that kind of thing has this has this kind of debate happened at all i think there has been some talk about making the president less powerful because the president within the current constitution is is very is extremely powerful 
um, in common with a lot of Latin American countries. And that has been kind of considered to be a, a problem, both because um, both because of the weaknesses of, of putting too much power in one person, but also because Chile has has quite short presidential terms and you can't be re-elected, which means that Chilean presidents are often like basically lame ducks within like two years of being in power. Um, so you have kind of a long, you often have a lot of time where presidents are kind of struggling to kind of get agendas passed because everyone in politics knows that they're going to leave office quite soon. Um, so yeah, I, I, I didn't actually see, like, I didn't, I didn't hear or read about this in the campaign. So I don't think it was a prominent part of the campaign mm. for the constituent convention, partially because also like the TV advertisement were very short. So it was, it's hard to make, I think, a, a very elaborate case during the, the advertisements that, that the can, mm. candidates for the convention had but that doesn't mean it won't be debated i mean quite frankly everything is on the table there's there's limits as we talked about because of the time period the two-third votes and the the plebiscite that has to happen at the end but this is one of the kind of most exciting things about the about a constitutional Mm. convention i'm gonna i'm gonna go out on a limb here but you know this is kind of what hannah arendt the famous political theorist called you know, kind of this form of radical freedom, starting anew, coming up with something completely new um, as to what politics is like for a community. Yeah. So I don't see why it wouldn't be debated. Yeah, well, at the very least, uh, my sense is that it's probably likely that the presidency will be less powerful at the end, out of the end of this process. Um, I also think that there's probably a good chance of like, different styles of politics being embedded in some ways. So, for example, um, obviously decentralization is something that come up. Chile is pretty centralized for a, for a Latin American country. Um, and also, um, like the, the, the list that came third, um, the list of the people, um, which is a list of independent, of left-wing independence, seems to have a kind of participatory democracy kind of edge to them where they're kind of talking about um, like holding kind of public meetings to kind of get people's thoughts on like what should be in the constitution during the constitutional convention itself. Um, so that obviously that, that, that kind of approach obviously uh, might embed some kind of more deliberative elements into the, into as, as a part of it itself. Okay, um, so the, the last the last thing I kind of wanted to ask about was, um, well, Chile uh, will be returning to the polls later in the year for the kind of regularly scheduled presidential and legislative elections. What, if anything, do these results tell us about what's going to happen um, in, in those elections? Okay, um, so um, something that's been kind of coming up in Chilean polls a lot um, so we don't have a very many polls in Chile on like the level of support for parties. We basically have a lot of polls about who might be elected president. And those polls are, at the moment are very diverse. There's a, a lot of volatility to them. Um, obviously, a lot of the parties don't have kind of clear candidates yet or in the process of selecting them. Um, but candidates from the radical left have typically seemed to be leading all year. And given that the the coalition of um, left-wing, of of left of the traditional centre-left came second in this election and that um, a large number of the independents elected were also hailed from, uh, from the left, it, it seems to confirm that there is a party system change going on here, as well as a kind of major constitutional change. Um, and that's something that we can also see in the regional and local elections, which happened on the same day, where the the left has 
has performed very well and the the two traditional coalitions um, have won the most votes in both of those as opposed to the constitutional assembly but op sh at shockingly low levels compared to previous their previous levels of support so uh, there's definitely a movement going on here towards um towards what's sometimes been described as the third pole of Chilean politics kind of making a a big level of growth which will be significant in and of itself all right should, should we leave it there for Chile for now um but yeah that was a really fascinating discussion and yeah as as we kind of hear that before i think next week is going to be a bit of a um it's going to be a bit of a quiet week in terms of international elections so we can take a, a brief yeah. break from direct election coverage to talk a little bit more about this kind of stuff um how do we design a, a good constitution what are our favorite kind of um sort of constitutional design features uh and also some things that are kind of uh, laughably bad as well which should yeah. be a fun discussion all around if you like the electoral reform tangents electoral system tangents we go on every episode then you will love this one <laughs> all right yeah or we could just talk about eurovision uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i think it's a very good time to re-up chris chris's article that you <laughs> wrote oh. about the electoral system of eurovision yes um, about 10 years ago for my well nine years ago for my sins I, I wrote for my previous job a description of how you could change the Eurovision electoral system to an implementation of the single transferable vote. And it's been such a success, that article, that it gets re-upped by the organisation I was working for every single year. <laughs> and it haunts me. Um, I, I once got quoted in Wired magazine because they decided to just take sections of it and turn it into an article. <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a wonderful that's a good claim to claim to have mm. yeah, in the, in the, in the age of the be, internet that's going in to the be, age of the internet yeah. that's going to be nailed on my gravestone i fear <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he came up with a version of stv for eurovision <laughs> yeah <laughs> have uh, chris eurovision terry it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Comes around. yeah. <laughs> okay that's something good to be known by Yes. You, yes. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Impact. If, if you, <laughs> listeners out there, if you like this uh, episode, please remember to rate us, subscribe, and recommend us to fellow listeners. Excellent. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, see day. everyone next week. Bye.